Today on In Good Faith, it's a book club episode, our second, and we're so excited about Gilead. And I'd like to start by having everyone on our four-person panel here briefly introduce themselves. And we'll start with uh, Terrell Givens, who actually teaches this book in courses. I do. I'm Terrell Givens. I'm the Neil A. Maxwell Senior Research Fellow at the Maxwell Institute here at BYU. Uh, I taught literature for 30-some years back at the University of Richmond, and I've just been here for three years now. Great. And I'm Heather Bigley. You guys know me. I'm a producer here on In Good Faith. And an avid reader. Yes. I'm Tenery Taylor, and I'm the producer of Constant Wonder, also here on BYU Radio. Well, let's jump in. This is a book by an author who is now 79 years old. has won a Pulitzer Prize. And I have one quick question before we talk about content, which is, do any of you have any hesitation when you see a, that the book is a prize winner? Here's mine. Oh. I think people have judged the book as good. So if I don't feel the same, maybe I'm the one being <laughs> measured, not the book. Well, I used to always have a, a reading project for myself. Every summer, I would read the um, the Man Booker Prize. Man Booker, okay. <laughs> but I wouldn't read the one that won. I would read the short list because I was like, who are the runners up that these folks were like, eh, it didn't quite make it because I might like those more than I like the one that won because um, I'm kind of an underdog. So I, as a I kid, I, I took the Newberry list because yeah. I thought these are bound to be good. Yeah. I just went on faith. I don't have a problem because I feel like I'm so busy. So if I can at least get, well, somebody liked this book. Somebody thought it was worth something. So it's probably worth at least investigating. I'm okay with that. What do you think? Well, I tend to not have much confidence in contemporary literary tastes. So <laughs> I, I, I read this in spite of <laughs> the awards that it has won. And I was thrilled to discover that there is still a receptivity to profoundly spiritual uh, writing. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to open the door into what this is. When you read this, what made you decide, I should teach a course on this, I, or I should include this in a course? Hard to give a quick answer to that, but I teach a course called B- Belief and Doubt in Life and Literature. And I discovered long ago that one can't uh, beat the devil in his own backyard. You can't as as Robinson herself says in this novel, uh, faith is not a matter of argumentative success. And so for years I taught an array of texts that critiqued the Christian heritage and tradition, Hume and Nietzsche and Freud, uh, and then tried to respond with texts that engage the argument about religious belief. And I discovered it's much more powerful and much more effective to engage those texts that enact religious belief. Mm that reflect uh, or live out the implications of faith commitment. And that's what this book does so marvelously well. It's a kind of sacramental fiction that exposes you to the, to the effects of religious belief rather than the arguments. Do you have uh, recommendations for other books that you would include on that syllabus? Well, uh, the other principal work I think that does that exceedingly well, more directly, is uh, The Showings of Julian of Norwich. Okay, yeah. It's a book in which I think reading it, uh, one actually feels rather than reads about the love of God. One experiences the power of the love of God through her revelatory experiences. Yeah, she's pretty incredible. Um, well, and the thing about this book is that there are three others that follow it, right? So if you love this, right, you can also indulge and read um, Home, Leela, and Jack, which are sort of uh, not quite sequels. I was uh, reading a New Yorker um, interview with Marilyn Robinson where where the author posited that it was more like the, the Gospels. Like, here's one event that happens, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and we have four different folks who tell us from their perspective. And so this is one perspective. This is the perspective of the Reverend John Ames. Um, and he is an elderly fellow, but recently blessed with a wife and child. So, One of the most interesting things that I noted at the very beginning, not knowing anything, I decided not to look up anything about the book before I started, was the fragmentary nature. Almost like the story had been written and then cut into pieces and then, not randomly, but then moved around so that sometimes you're hearing a story and later you're going to get the piece that was missing from it and go, aha. Or why you're hearing the story. Right. Yeah. Because some of these stories, um, I'm, what is this book about? You know, it takes about 
half the book to to get any kind of a narrative thread. I, f- I felt like get established, like, where are we going with this story and why are we telling it right now? Um, I mean, besides the fact that he's dying, but why is this character, this Jack character, loom so large in this dying man's life? You know, right. it, that's very strange at the beginning and middle of the book. And And this, the person that feels sort of like causes a lot of stuff to happen doesn't really show up till about page 90. Right, right. That's what I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't show up in person till, till page oh, 90. Oh, in person, true. But no, true. no, I mean, you're, you're right about that. But um, I, I think, I'm just going to give my pitch here. I, I think one has to maybe read the work a few times before one recognizes that it actually is a, I think, I, I read it as a retelling of the story of the prodigal son. Mm. Oh, for But sure. it's being told mm-hmm. from the perspective of the older brother, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who is the author. <laughs> yeah. And so ultimately, I think it's a story about, uh, well, many of us who as, if we are believing committed Christians, then we tend to more identify with the older brother. And hey, we've been faithful all of our lives. Where's our party? (laughs) Where's our party? (laughs) Well, he even says there isn't going to be a party for me in heaven uh, because they weren't worried about me. Right, right, right. He says that towards the end. That's right. And I I think what we find in in, in just the incredible denouement in the very end is whereas the older brother, he learns to love the prodigal with the same grace that the father has accorded to the prodigal. Yeah, when they they have sort of a an really open-to-each-other conversation near the end and where he's so disappointed in so many things that have happened, but he does, just like in The Prodigal Son, he hugs him and, and he even says, and for a moment he, he actually laid his head on my shoulder, I'm just so tired. And he, and he ends that little interchange, doesn't really know what to say, but he says, you're a good man. Yeah, yeah. Which... Hasn't been what the evidence has been showing, really. <laughs> well, and it hasn't been what he's been telling us until mm. just the last few pages of the book. He has not believed it himself, it doesn't seem like. Right. Yeah, yeah and I, I think it's about grace. Mm. But, um, you know, she, of course, is a Calvinist. Well, she insists she's a Calvinist. <laughs> <laughs> Although we could have a discussion about how Calvinist her Calvinism is. Um But, you know, grace is an idea that in one form or another intersects virtually all Christian traditions. And I think Latter-day Saints haven't yet articulated a very compelling uh, version of our own. But I think this is one of the the, the most sublime descriptions of grace that's ever been written. And uh, if you have the same edition, it's on page 238. And this is in the context of this final encounter between Jack and John Ames, and he realizes, quote, there is no justice in love, no proportion in it, and there need not be. So I think ultimately Mm. grace is about our ability to receive and practice a kind of asymmetry, as I see it. We want everything to be fair. We want everything to be proportioned. We want, right? And and I I think the Lord keeps warning us away from that vision through a number of the of his teachings, parables that we hear, right? The person who arrives late to the field to work and equal, and, pay. equal pay for equal work <laughs> and, you know, the law of reciprocity and all that. And, and I think virtually everything that Jesus does and teaches from his washing of the feet of the disciples to his, the story of the prodigal is about the disproportion. It reminds me of a line in Till We Have Faces, one of the great works of C.S. Lewis, where one of the characters asks, uh, I think asks one of the divinities, right? Um, are the gods just? And the person responds, we'd better pray not. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because well, it, sometimes justice is what we think we want, but we probably would not be that's happy. Right. That's right. Uh, well, you, we don't know. I think the whole point of the book is we don't know the whole story. And so to ask for yeah. justice is yeah. to ask blindly for something that, yeah. you know, we won't even understand if it were administered, I think. Mm-hmm. I was just going to add before we leave this point, um, he takes that that idea of grace all the way into the like a romance when he's talking about how he felt about his wife. And he doesn't know, he's not convinced that she feels the same way about him. And he says, um, in my copy, this is on 209, love is holy because it, because it is like grace. 
the worthiness of its object is never really what matters. And mm-hmm. so, um, mm, yeah. so he, he, for him, that's okay because he's experienced the, bene- the, the bounty right. of being in love with someone, which he never thought, and it was unexpected, right? So late in his life, and then to have a child out of that. But um, I just thought making that kind of comparison with grace it helped me to kind of like, you know, check how I think about my relationships. Am I treating them with grace right. or am I treating them transactionally? Yeah. As I was rereading for today, I started underlining every um, mention of the word blessing that is happening in the beginning and how blessing actually seems to change, right? What what a blessing is changes. And it. I started noticing it with um, the discussion where, uh, you know, John Ames says, you know, I got to hold my baby daughter before she died. Um, and that was a blessing, which, you know, when I was first reading it, just gave me, you know, sent me down a river of tears. Uh, how how um, profound that is, that, like, he got to hold this child. She was never going to live, but he has this vision of her. And that's another word that keeps coming back yeah. in this. Um, what is a vision? How does a, how does a, how do each of us receive sort of, revelation in our own parlance. Um, How do each of us understand what God wants us to do? But then we have blessings of, you know, the dark blessing of my empty life, right? Um, It was a blessing to me that for decades I was all alone. Um, It was a blessing to me um, what my grandfather did in certain circumstances. And these are not all what we think of as conventional blessings, right? When the guy comes back from the war and has lost an eye and and he's sort of used to it by the time he gets home and people are all worried, he says, well, I know one thing, there's a blessing in it. Yeah. Which is not always our first thought of how to react. (laughs) I folded down that same corner. And uh, this was really moving to me because it was a moment in my own life. Um, My daughter lived, but she was the oldest, and I had never been someone who was really fond of children, (laughs) but thought, eventually, I'll probably have to do this. (laughs) (laughs) And, And for me, the way that my children taught me not only to love them, but to love all children, they were my door into that. And I remember that moment of first her being born, the nurse holding her, and her head turned over. And this exact moment, she opened her eyes. We locked eyes. I don't know if I was even in focus, but it was an electric moment where I thought, that's who you are. And that, and I had a love there that I hadn't had expectantly until the moment of making that eye contact. And so as a writer, uh, Marilyn Robinson there were so many times I could have folded on every page that had a moment that I thought was acute observation that that evoked feeling. Yeah, the epiphanies of the commonplace. Mm. Yeah, now, I, we we haven't mentioned yet, of course. Right, this book is ostensibly framed as a, a series of letters, right? That yeah. a seventy-eight-year-old clergyman is writing to his son, who's too young at this point to engage in a kind of reflective conversation about life. And so one one would expect, I think, that a that a preacher at that age writing to a, a son would would be full of moral instruction. And yet what he's really about is the need to be attentive to the sacred in life. And if I could just turn to one moment where I think he redefines the sacred and I think it's related to his concept of, of what does it mean to be blessed or what is a blessing. And this is on page 124. One of my very, very favorite moments in the text where he says, I'm reminded of this precious instruction by my own great failure to live up to it recently. Calvin says somewhere that each of us is an actor on a stage and God is the audience. That metaphor has always interested me because it makes us artists of our own behavior. And the reaction of God to us might be thought of as aesthetic rather than morally judgmental in the ordinary sense. And I think that principle explains, right? It's the rationale behind the approach that John Mm -hmm. Ames has to this letter that he's leaving. And I think we tend to think, oh, aesthetics, that's what, you know, English professors and artists are interested in, right? It's kind of the icing on the cake, the pretty thing. And Mm -hmm. and he's, he's saying something much more profound here. He's saying that the 
goodness of life, the goodness of being itself, is can can most closely be approached conceptually by thinking of beauty, the sheer overwhelming power of beauty to 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 immerse us and and transport us, and uh, and that and, we we that we're choosing as we're on this stage. Yes, and with God in the audience. But I think that this is such a healthy corrective to what can be a Latter-day Saint or a general Christian preoccupation with the right actions, right? The right selection of choices, the, the obedience. Mm. And, and he's saying, no, there's a beauty with which we can live our lives. I think that often, and this, this would be, I think, to push back against Calvinism in some ways, right? Because Calvinism is very much about this, the script of predestination. And right? we engage that as a theme at times explicitly in the text. But, but even as Latter-day Saints, we tend, I think, too often to have a providentialist view of the world. We tend to think that God has written a script for us, and we have to find out what that script is and act it out. And, and the picture we're getting here, rather, I think, is, is God gives us a blank canvas and says, here, paint a beautiful life. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's so much more freeing and ennobling, mm. I think. And I, I think on that same page, you're kind of talking in visual terms of beauty, but I also am thinking of rhetoric and conversation and dialogue and dialectic. Um, in the paragraph before that, he says, when you encounter another person, when you have dealings with anyone at all, it is as if a question is being put to you. So you must think, what is the Lord asking of me in this moment, in this situation? And so you have to kind of, if we're rejecting this sense of predestination, we have to kind of say that the Lord doesn't have one right answer. We just have to figure out what it is, right? That's I right. think what he's That's saying right. is enter into the the conversation mm. and with that person and with God. So I'm wondering why she chose to have this book. I mean, there were male and female characters throughout but it seems like there's so much father and son, father and son, father and father and grandfather. It, it, that's the frame that she's hanging all of this on. And I'm wondering why. Well, I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me, um, you know, I was the first time I read it and I got to some part where they said Negro. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Hold on. <laughs> and then I started doing math in my head and I was like, this is going to be about the Civil War. Okay okay, I'm here, right? I'm ready for whatever you got to throw to me. And um, what was fascinating to me is that relationship between the grandfather, the father, and John Ames, where John Ames is sort of an observer, and the grandfather is saying, we have a great obligation and responsibility. And the father is like, yeah, let's do it peacefully. And the grandfather's like, that's not going to that's not going to change anything and there's this section if i can find it where he talks about the great disappointment um this is on 85 for me um the father and the grandfather are actually having this argument in a very um uh, respectful this, yeah, way reverend table. reverend <laughs> right this is just cracking me up right um and uh they've had this argument where basically the father wants to say to the grandfather, the most important thing to you were these other people in this other place, not me and my mother and not my siblings, which is a fine and important thing to say. <laughs> like, we needed more from you. And the grandfather is saying, um, it was so important. God told me to do that, right? But we find this little poem. He left a note lying on the kitchen table, which he said, no good has come, no evil is ended that is your peace. And so both can be true, right? And I think that is, you know, I'm always quoting Renoir, right? The hell of life is that everyone has their own reasons. But like they both can be true that not enough was done and that this grandfather owed more to his family. And um, to me, there's something profound and painful to recognize that. I mean, we'd I think in the book what we want to say is one of these people is bad and one of these people is good. And we even want to say John Ames is good and Jack is bad. But we get to the end and we go, no, Jack is a good man. We just haven't understood. Well, I yeah, no, I, I think in some ways the family serves as a uh, family relationships serve as a kind of microcosm for the complexity of all those human relationships in which we engage. 
And he, he says on page 198, we all do live in the ruins of the lives of other generations. Mm. And so there's this, in some ways, I think it's really prescient that she is, is centering this theme because it seems more relevant even today than it did when she wrote it. We've become so much more attuned today to the concept of gener intergenerational trauma mm. and the woundedness that we inherit and the ways in which we are, well, just hurt and damaged. And um, what, you know, the, Robinson goes out of her way to, I, I think, def define holiness in such a way that we can find it in almost anyone. And so she gives us this portrait of a grandfather, right, who's this violent firebrand leading his congregation into war. She refers to him as John the Baptist, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the son is a pacifist, right? And, and he's a Congregationalist minister whose best friend is a Presbyterian. And, and they make really lovely jokes, right, about the Quakers <laughs> and about the, the Episcopal, you know, right? Every, so there's this sense that, that we can't quite come to a unity of understanding about questions of ultimate meaning. But we can recognize the inherent goodness of this whole array of strivers working, operating under all kinds of burdens and weights and inheritances. And uh, so I, I, I think what, what I want to believe she's saying, because it's my own, my own belief, is that holiness isn't an encounter with the absence of sin. Holiness is an encounter with that moment when the, the, the pure, absolute love of Christ just erupts in the life of a person. You're listening to In Good Faith. This is a book club discussion of the book Gilead. We'll be back with more in a moment. This is In Good Faith. It's a book club episode, our second, and we're so excited about this possibility of being able to interact with each listener because you can read the book. And at the end of this particular discussion, as a teaser, so you'll listen all the way to the end, we'll be announcing what next quarter's book will be. So you'll have, you'll have time to be able to read that and you can even send in comments that we would like to share or audio comments. We'll say more about that later in the show. And just before the break, we were hearing about, from Terrell Givens, holiness not being an absence of sin, but rather, how did you put it? It's the eruption of the pure love of Christ in the context mm. of any other, and any array of other imperfections and fallible pieces of a person. So, I, there is so much messiness yeah. in this book, which just reflects life, I think. And I think sometimes maybe we are not, we are not, prepared for that. When things go wrong, we think that whatever plan is in motion has been failing or surely I failed. It takes something to realize we are all living in a messy situation. And this comes out with every character in this, in this book. Yeah. And so what, what impresses me about Marilyn Robinson as a person is her intense humanity and compassion for all of us. And she writes these words on page 17 that are just so magnificent. Um, in eternity, this world will be Troy, I believe, and all that is past here will be the epic of the universe, the ballad they sing in the streets. So there's a recognition that um, even in a fallen world and with all the the treatise of, of catastrophe all around us in human relationships and history that, uh, that, that we're, a, we're a brave, valiant core of humans, wounded people trying to help other wounded people. I think it's marvelous. I think that was really driven home for me very visually when they are taking down, so John Ames is a child, 
And he goes with his father to watch the men take down the church. And on the day they're going to do it, it rains. I mean, it kind of you kind of feel like that a lot in life. Like, isn't it enough that we have to <laughs> deal with ashes? And now we have to deal with rain on top of ashes. And, and he talks about now back in the day when this was happening, the old women would have always had their hair up. But because of the rain, their hair is falling down and it was undone. And um, everybody was joyful. And he said, it was so joyful and sad. I'm on page 96 in my copy. I mention it again because it seems so much of my life was comprehended in that moment. Um, So he's watching the joy of service, I think. And I think we've all felt that when we're serving. There's joy, even though we're probably serving because somebody is hurting. Um, And then, of course, there's that really holy kind of moment when his father gives him a piece of bread with with ashes on his hands. And and he says, I don't think he actually would have put it into my mouth, but that's the way that I remember it. And I mean, the whole thing was so visual that like, if that's how he comprehended kind of the ultimate meaning in his life, you know, why are we looking for perfection? Because that was like everything going wrong yeah. all the time. And it was so joyful, the service, because they were united in love for each other. And there's a there's multiple places where he either says misfortune is not only misfortune and he says good fortune is not only good fortune, right? It's all going to come to us mixed um, and we have to decide how we're going to react and respond to it. It's that presence that was mentioned earlier. How present am I going to be um, and what can I recognize? From the very beginning, before I even knew that, you know, who Jack was or that he was going to be, you know, this prodigal son type character, just him, he and his father going to find his grandfather's grave and his brother who um, basically leaves the faith and and I don't know if you could say he denies God. I'm not sure if that's too strong, but anyway, rejects, rejects all his family's beliefs Um I just, this line from this song from Nancy Griffith, she's a folk singer, a songwriter, you know, and she has this song um, called Late Night Grand Hotel. And there's a line in that song that says, no one ever knows the heart of anyone else. And I I mean, that was song was just started in my head, like right from the beginning of this book. Um, And it, uh, you know, it goes uh, on page 197. Um, This is where he's finally having his conversation. Am I right, Terrell? This is where he's finally having his yeah. conversation. They've they've tried like three times. Right. Um, John Amos and Jack are finally having the heart to heart that that Jack so urgently he wants to tell him his story and his what he's trying to do with his life. And um so here John Amos says, For who among men knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of a man which is in him? In every important way We are such secrets from each other, and I do believe that there is a separate language in each of us, also a separate aesthetics and a separate jurisprudence. So it's a wonder we all can even get along if we're actually (laughs) speaking the same language and have separate, you know, systems of justice in our head. But I think we do, and I think that's the basis of so much turmoil in this world. And I think um, he's having to confront maybe his own sense of jurisprudence was wrong, right? Um, Especially, you know, as he was considering the character of Jack. Well, and the book is interesting because we've just all aligned ourselves perhaps with John Ames and then we realize he's wrong. And so we have to rethink all of our identification in the novel, right? Like, I mean, John Ames is a good man too, right? But he's been wrong about this and um, now we have to rethink. And I think that's important action for us. Yeah, and I think part of what's causing this opening of John Ames's heart is the fact that he is starting to see his own faith tradition through the eyes of another. Mm. And it, you know, it reminds me of, of one of the most powerful verses in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 34, where the prophet is reproaching the, the leaders of the people. And he's saying, effectively, you've polluted the water and our people downstream have to drink from it. And I think, what an image, right? Mm. A, a faith tradition is passed on to us and then we have to convey it to our neighbors and posterity without polluting it. And so to connect to that passage you just read, John Ames is finally answering the question that Jack had asked a few pages earlier, back back on page 170. And you can see that, that Jack is just, he's struggling to find God in the kind of universe that he inherited from his father and, and from John Ames. 
and and he, and he says this, and it's a powerful thing. He folded his arms and leaned back and twitched his foot. Does it seem right to you, he said, that there should be no common language between us? That there should be no way to bring a drop of water to those of us who language in the flames or who will, granting your terms? And uh, so I think that one of the things that Marilyn Robinson is trying to do is, this is maybe to impose too much of a, of a reading of her own mind, but it seems that she is trying to undo some of the legacy of a Protestant tradition that did so much to emphasize wrath and vengeance and retribution and the flames of hell. And here we hear the response of a victim of that language. And uh, and that victim is pointing out, like, and you turned a blind eye to all this other stuff, right? That's part of his critique. What do you I mean, mean other stuff? What well, basically race relations in America um, – Here's a person who's going to reveal my wife is black, my son is biracial, and I've been hearing that, like, this is all the stuff I'm supposed to pay attention to, and your generation is not paying attention to what I think is, right, the most important thing. In fact, um, I mentioned that article. In that article I read earlier, Marilyn Robinson refers to the civil rights movement as the third great awakening um, for her, right? Um, that, you know, this is when people started to pay attention again to what, how do we live a moral life in America? Um, and and I, she might be saying we failed. <laughs> Nothing has changed. Or if it has changed, it hasn't changed enough. Um, might be somewhere in here. Sometimes with a book, or any work of art, it, it can feel too didactic if you feel certain that the author thought, I want to make this point. Everyone should understand that. How do I build a scaffolding under that? And that doesn't always, in other words, they want to draw the full circle, like, and then redraw it three times. Get it? It's a circle. Get it? But I think she does a, a really good job of giving the full, first impulse of drawing the circle. And then just leaves it, and in our minds, she lets us draw the rest. And I've, I would love to know how much of this she had in her mind before she started writing and how much grew out of the actual making of the work of art and the telling. That would be kind of interesting, I think. Well, I guess we're giving spoilers here. Oh, yeah. We're assuming Absolutely. everybody's yes. read, the book. read so, the book. You know, you're just hanging on to, through the last page like, okay, Where's the resolution to this going to be? And we don't get it because Jack, you know, leaves town before his father's funeral. And he, I think we get it in the sense that John Ames finally can say, I understand you. I know why you're leaving. I get your pain. And um, but but where's he going? Right. <laughs> you know, and, and how is this going to be resolved? This is just going to be more heartbreak out there somewhere else, him trying to always try to find a home or a place for his family, you know, where they can, where, where is their begats, right? Where is their list of of um, genealogy, which I feel like that's what she was doing. I mean, he, he talks about, I think John says that in a letter to his son, this is your begats. Yeah. But so, you know, we, okay, here's your grandfather's story and your father's story. And, and um, I, I, I haven't read the other books, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it because two of them are from women's perspective, yeah. right? Home and and Lila. Um, so, but anyway, I I just feel like, but he's not going. He's not leaving to go back to his son, right? That there's some ambiguity there, isn't there? It seems and interesting that, that is there a place? And well, her it, people and don't want what, him, right? Yeah, but it seems like there there really at this time is no place. Right. The question is, will there be a time? Like, if this happened today, this would be... There's not much of a story. Yeah, there's not much of a story. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to go... That conversation, something that I marked, was when um, essentially Jack is saying, do you think my father would accept my wife? Yeah. And this is, in my copy, the bottom of 229. Um, and we see here John Ames sort of uh, waffling, right? Like, well, um, and so at the top of 2.30, Jack says, if it were you and not my father. And we get a whole page of him like sort of going back, like, Jack is mean to me and all this stuff. And then finally at the bottom, he said, 
I said I would love to know the child, especially if you explained to me the way you just did. Um, and then he kind of puts the knife in and says, he's certainly like that other kid that you had, <laughs> um, <laughs> right? Um, which is, and then he apologizes for that. But that to me, I mean, has often been in, in America, the solution. The babies are going to help us mm. soften our hearts and we're going to see the babies and we're going to say, but this innocent, I'm, I love them. I just have yeah. to love them. Children's children are the crown of old men. Yes. Um, <laughs> which, of course, is, you know, about um, Jack is kind of using that as like, okay, I'm just going to quote scripture with you because that's the language we do have, even though we interpret these lines completely differently, right? Our understanding of them is different. Um, but one thing is the life of John Ames as written in this book, suddenly gave me some empathy for Job. I don't, I don't, this is my own personal journey, folks. But every time I read the book of Job, I always get really, like I kind of, you know, the hairs stand up on the back of my neck because it's the whole, he lost everything, but he got more. And so it was all better, right? And I was like, what is this? Like those people that he lost meant nothing. And so there's no (laughs) grief over them. And he just got some replacements and it all worked out, right? That's sort of how I've always read it. And here, the grief and the sadness and then the the pure joy. I never thought I would get this back. And here I have a child and I have a wife and all that that means to me. And they're, they're individual people who are important to me and they astound me and they couldn't have been anyone else. And, and suddenly I just had this like, oh, Job, hmm. poor Job. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mourn with Job for a little bit and also celebrate with him. So that was something I didn't expect um, when I was reading it the second time. Terrell, I'm wondering if I could ask, how do students react today when you're, they're in the process of reading or what do you feel like they're getting from the book? Well, it's, uh, it, it's not a book that has intuitive appeal <laughs> to young readers <laughs> because there isn't... There's no action. There's no. It all is just a series of reflections, and so it. I, I I try to prepare the students for it by explaining that this is going to be an experience of sacramental f- fiction. It's not it, it, about the story uh, it, itself. Um, but I, the reaction in my experience has generally been positive. Um, one thing that I think is resonant with with younger readers today is her. The fact that she is pushing back against a whole, right, like a 2,000-year heritage of asceticism, right, especially in the Catholic Church, right? There was kind of a sanctification of unembodiment, right? We want to to divest ourselves of bodily experiences. And and, and this goes in the opposite direction. It's about, right, it's about glorying in the commonplace. Um, And like this passage early on, he said, I wanted to talk about the gift of physical particularity. And how blessing and sacrament are mediated through it. I've been thinking lately about how I have loved my physical life. Mm. Yeah. So those are ideas, right? Mindfulness and, and he's, contemplation. He's in his seventies, realizing it, this. he's in his old, yeah, his late seventies. Huh. And but you know, the, just the glory of the the sunlight on a child's hair, or the cat purring in your lap, or all uh-huh. of these, right? It's just, it's, it's, it's lovely. Yeah. I think that's so important for me, just I think for all of us, right? Um, you mentioned present, being present and mindfulness, and um, this is very much, right, telling us slow down and appreciate. And, I, I, you know, and then he has this whole section where he's like, one day I'll know what it's like to be dead. I probably will, when you're reading this, I'll probably really know what it's like <laughs> to be dead, and I'm not going to be able to tell you. And and then he has a section like, I, I like where he thinks, I can't wait for you to be an old man. And when you first get that tinge of arthritis, I'm like, you know, it makes me sort of shiver to think that you're going to have that experience too. And so the body becomes, right, again, if we go back to that idea of language, the body becomes the language that we can all agree on. We're all going to have these physical experiences of aging um, and of um, beauty. If we just can pay attention to them and realize they are the blessing that they are. Um, Even sorrow in that regard. So in reference to your comments about Job, right, back on page 104, he says, I can't believe we will forget Hmm. our sorrows altogether. 
that would mean forgetting that we had lived. So again, yeah, yeah. that's that's counter to the whole otherworldliness that we generally associate with. Yeah, God shall wipe all tears away, and there shall be no more sorrow. Right. In the, no but the remembrance of it. Mm. He seemed to like sanctify that time, those lonely decades after he lost his wife and child, and, and who died in childbirth, um, and. And so he's alone for decades and until he gets this unexpected family. But he does he says it's kind of a holy time yeah. to feel the loss as a real thing, as something to to treasure and, and, and you know, you get that whole like Garden of Eden, you know, joy and sorrow, they have to they have to be together, they have to be paired. You really won't be joyful if you've never gone through sorrow. Um, yeah, and at the same time, he recognizes that he was bitter, that he was angry, right? And it, yeah. But that comes out slowly, mm-hmm. right? Like, he kind of introduces his friend Bowden having the eight children. <laughs> and it was really beautiful and joyful. And they named their son after me. And then later he's like, I really wish they hadn't named their son after me. <laughs> and Right? And he just, you know, again, there's that circularity of... You know, this is not a linear novel. This novel isn't about saying, here's a piece of information and now we go to point C and then we'll go to point D. This is about coming back around and re-examining again and again. You're listening to In Good Faith. This is a book club edition talking about Marilyn Robinson's novel, Gilead. And we'll be back with more in a moment. This is In Good Faith. Today we're talking in a book club edition about Marilyn Robinson's book, Gilead. And Heather was just aching to bring up this (laughs) opening section. Yeah, so the opening section, um, we get a lot laid out for us, um, who the main players are. And one of the things that we get is um, sort of, you know, the evolution of... John Ames' relationship with his own father and where it, it, like, we get all these really beautiful moments about what he loves about his father and which will later be tempered by, also my father embarrassed me. Also my father, you know, I felt all this stress when I had a relationship with my father. But we get this fascinating journey that um, these two uh, people go on together to find the grandfather's grave. And again, this is setting up how the father and the grandfather feel about each other and the sort of passion the father has for his own father, right? Even though he's angry at him, even though he feels um, like, you know, he wasn't, I guess today we would say he wasn't a great dad. I don't know if that was something that people said um, in that generation. Um, But yeah, this need to find the grave and this leads them to through basically um, a great drought, there's no food, there's no water. On page 11, he says, never before in my life had I wondered where I would come by my next drink of water. And I numbered among my blessings that I have not had occasion to wonder since. Mm. And of course, that's going to be a whole thematic where we see water throughout this novel and what role waters, rivers, uh, sprinklers play. Um And then they meet this woman who remains unnamed and who just helps them once in a while by giving them very simple food. And he says, um, I loved that woman like a second mother. I loved her to the point of tears. And he's going to describe this food, again, going back to that idea of the physical, blackberry preserves melted over it, a spoonful of top milk on it, and we ate standing there at the stoop in the chill and the dark, and it was perfectly wonderful. Um, And for me, on the next page, 13, there's then this idea that this woman is going to be left, right? They're going to go away from her. She cried. They they offer for her to come with them. Well, this is part of it. This kind of the subtle humor of Robinson, right? She cried when we said goodbye to her and wiped her face with her apron. They ask her to come with, and she goes, there's the cow. (laughs) <laughs> and then <laughs> can't leave the cow can't leave the cow and in my mind I'm like you just put a halter on that cow and you walk the cow with you to wherever there are people in water <laughs> but yeah just this there's this image of privation and I, you can't say luxury because everything is so simple right there was some water 
and we were grateful. There was a little food and we were grateful. So it's it's this interesting image of, you know, in a place where there was nothing, right, we got what we needed. The very end of this section was to me almost a summation I, as I look back on it and was just a really beautiful, touching moment to me unexpectedly, which is they've, they've now turned towards home. Um, they've had a little bit of food, a little bit of water, and they're headed home. And the boy notices the sun is going down and the moon has risen in, and they are exactly between them because this is a flat area, something that never happens in my life here in the Mountain <laughs> West. And he's struck by just the vision of it. His father is not even noticing it, but he's he, point, he yep. points it out. Um, and then he didn't know how to to disturb his prayer. So he just kisses his hand, his father's hand, and says, look at the moon. He said, and he did. And it goes on, but the father ends sort of looking around a little perplexed, I think, and uh, on page 15, my father said, I would never have thought this place could be beautiful. I'm glad to know that. Yeah. Which made me think of any the deserts we might be in or wildernesses. Maybe we've all had a time when we thought, oh, there's nothing out here. And then the lighting's right or the mood is right. And even something that seems very barren can have its own kind of beauty. Right. Well, and this ties back into the desert in his own life, the barren decades mm. where he says I lived off of fried egg sandwiches and baseball right like <laughs> um, just this idea that that too it becomes beautiful it becomes sacred because there is a child and a wife later right like what would this novel be if if they didn't exist and well I wonder though I think he did he come to that feeling that that was a sacred time only when he had the joy back in his life or was in the moment I kind of got the sense that he, in the moment, was relishing feeling. It's like okay. feel all the feels, yeah. you know. I mean, I feel like that's what he was. I feel like we he don't was, know because he's right. writing from later. But yeah, I was interpreting it how I interpret my own life, right? Mm-hmm. Like only when the happy thing finally comes do I go, <laughs> "Oh, it was worth it." Whereas the whole time I was in the middle of it, I'm I'm complaining and going, "Why is this happening to me?" You know, like yeah. But, but I think they're kind of in the middle of it yeah. when when he realizes that this was a beautiful place, this kind of yeah forsaken, you know, land and parched drought. I'm, I'm wondering about setting the whole book in in the plains mm-hmm. in the 50s. Like, what does that contribute to the story? Right. I think part of it is uh, the answer to that question may be given in part in the last sentence of the novel when he when he's signs off to his son and says, I mm. pray you'll grow up a brave man in a brave country. I will pray you find a way to be useful. And, and so the way I relate those two ideas of setting and that thought is there's something here about the humility of modest ambitions. <laughs> and, uh, and so we don't have spectacular scenery or spectacular events or spectacular deeds. And yet what we have is just beautiful gestures again and, and, and again. So she sets this up with people of nominally the same faith, Christianity, but pushed in different directions and then it it seems like what comes up mattering is it really is how we treat each other and what those relationships are more than any particular aspect of of the faith yeah that's absolutely the case i think and that's why she deliberately populates her world with every conceivable denomination yeah. <laughs> or 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 position relative to belief mm. agnosticism atheism fanaticism. Uh, There's goodness in it all that can be found. Final thoughts, anyone here? Yeah, if I could, my final thought would be this. Um, You know, one of the the greatest theorists of literature said uh, the purpose of art is to make the stone stony. (laughs) Uh, It's just to enhance the vividness of experience before it becomes dulled by reiteration and, Mm. and habit. And uh, so I think somebody mentioned this line, but he says early on, I believe there are visions that come to us only in memory, in retrospect. And that's why I think that reading this novel, one is forced to practice, right, slowing down, contemplating, 
seen. And then I think one can share in that experience of the holiness that she's trying to convey. Because she focuses on tiny moments, you can read this book all the way through, assembling the pieces and having the the fun and the mental challenge of, of putting the pieces together because they don't come in order. But this could also, it seems, be kind of a daily devotional book where you read a little chapter and then you just sit with that for a while. Yeah, no, I think one could. Or I, or you could model what's happening and write your own little mini devotional, right? <laughs> to a future child. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. Or to your future self or, yeah, yeah. just this, this is the beautiful thing I saw today. I mean, we've heard writing gratitude journals and that's maybe similar to what's happening Um I'm grateful for this thing that I experienced. I'm grateful for this memory. I'm revisiting it. I learned something new here. Yeah, learned something new in the revisiting yeah. that Terrell just pointed out. Yeah. I think I'll go to the end, to the last page. Um, he says, he's kind of talking about hope and how, he says, the whole town does look like whatever hope becomes after it begins to weary a little. Um, <laughs> and, and so... He's kind of bringing up, well, you know, should you give up hope, he said. You know, and then it wearies a little more. But hope deferred is still hope. I love this town. Um, and I think his point is there's no expiration date on hope. And because that's what hope is. <laughs> it's it's a hope, you know, it's for something that's coming and it's not here yet. So you can keep doing it. Yeah. So time's up. But Gilead. It's a biblical reference here. You just talked about the town and the hope. There is a balm in Gilead that we that there is hope somehow. I'm I'm thinking that's why she named the town that, and the, that's why the book is named that. Although it doesn't seem to be explicitly pointed out anywhere. Thank you so much to Terrell, to Tenery, to Heather, and to all of you who have been reading and having your own thoughts about this book, Gilead. In May will be our next book club discussion, and we will be talking about Richard Rohr's The Universal Christ. And so get to your library, hide the hints, and feel free. To, we'll tell more in upcoming episodes how you can send in your comments. We'd love you as listeners to also be part of this discussion and what things you find that are meaningful in the books. I'm Stephen Cap Perry, and thank you for being part of our In Good Faith book club. 